going to be reading today from Ephesians 4, starting at verse 7. It is printed in your bulletin, or if you brought a Bible or the Bible app. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of speaking the truth in love. We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, uh, Angela, for praying for us and leading in prayer uh, as well. If you look over uh, right here at this banner, you'll see it says that Grace Valley Church, uh, it just says clear thinking, deep feeling, humbly serving. If you, if you have not, if, if you haven't been here for a while, you might see that and go, what's that all about? Well, these are, these are summary statements about what... Uh, we at Grace Valley Church believe a mature follower of Jesus looks like. So a mature follower of Jesus is someone who is clear thinking, meaning they understand the Bible from, or they understand reality, I should say, from God's perspective. Um, to be deep feeling means that we believe that you can have an, an actual experiential, emotional relationship with God who is a person, that, that our faith is not simply about a bunch of head knowledge, but it's something that we, we, we have in a, in a personal relational sense uh, in, in, with God, our creator. And then um, humbly, I can't decide whether I should preach from here or up there, so I might just go like all over the place. Um, and then we have humbly serving meaning that mature followers of Jesus Christ are people who understand that life is to be lived in service to others and within the community, uh, your church family, that's Grace Valley Church, but then also outside the community. And we seek to, to serve the community of Dundas and, and our neighbors wherever we live um, for the sake of Jesus. So this is sort of our summary of what a mature follower of Jesus Christ looks like. And it's not, it's not my idea. It's not you know, the staff team's idea. It's not the, the leadership of, uh, or the founding uh, launch team uh, of Grace Valley's idea. This is, this is the Bible's idea. If you look at verse 13 of the passage that we just read, Paul says this. He says, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. 
the idea of the church and the, the idea of being part of the church is that we would become more and more like Jesus Christ. And you know, just for those of you who are here this morning and maybe aren't Christians and are wondering about the Christian faith and how it compares to different religions, what makes it unique, etc., one of the wonderful things about Christianity is that it is not primarily about some kind of abstract attainment, let's say, of nirvana or enlightenment or a higher state. It is actually about being in deep relationship with a real life flesh and blood person, Jesus Christ. Now I know he's not here in the flesh personally in front of us, but he is in the flesh in the heavenly realms. He, when he ascended, he ascended bodily in the flesh and he sent his Holy Spirit to give us a real relationship with him. And our life together is all about us developing the character of Jesus in us so that we would be clear thinking, deep feeling, humbly serving, reflecting him more and more. Now, the question becomes then, what are the means that God uses to get us there? How does God get us to become more and more like Jesus, reflecting the character of him? And we're going to look at two uh, means that God uses. Obviously, he uses the Holy Spirit. Obviously, the third person of the Trinity who lives in every Christian is the one who accomplishes us becoming more and more like Jesus. But there are means, there are things, mechanisms, if you will, that God uses to develop this in us. And we're going to look at two of them uh, this morning. We're going to look at the exercise of gifts, and we're going to look at the primacy of focusing on the word. And there is a, an outline in the back of your bulletin that you can follow along. So let's look at these two that Paul outlines for us in Ephesians chapter 4. First of all, the exercise of gifts. In verses 7 through 10, Paul says that every believer, it says in verse 7, each one of us, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And scholars will say that the grace that he's describing there is something called a spiritual gift. And then it goes on to describe how Jesus Christ, when he died, he won victory over sin and death and hell. And when he ascended, his ascension, after he res was resurrected from the grave, his ascension was similar to the the uh, entrance of an ancient conquering king who had returned from war and was coming back to his home city and he had gifts with him. He had the booty, the spoils of war, so to speak, with him and he returned with those gifts and then he would give them liberally to his people. That's what's being described here. So, so Jesus, when he died and rose and ascended, he has spoils of war, these things called gifts, spiritual gifts that he gives to his people. Now, what are these gifts? What's he describing? Paul lists four of them here. I say four, and I'll get to you what. You read five, maybe, and I'll explain why. The prophets, that's a gift. The evangelists, they're a gift. The pastors and teachers. So there's, there's four or five here, 
but there are five different lists of gifts throughout the New Testament, and when you put all those lists together, you get over 20 spiritual gifts, and that's probably still just a representative list, okay? You tracking with me? I'm going fast because of the time of all, we've done a lot of stuff already today, so I know I'm going fast, but you're tracking with me, right? Everybody nod if you're tracking with me. So there's all kinds of different spiritual, spiritual gifts, that Jesus, because he is the conquering king, gives to his people. Now, let me give you a definition of these spiritual gifts that I think are very, very helpful because a lot of people say, well, you know, I have the gift of cake baking. Is that a spiritual gift? Not sure, but maybe if we understand what spiritual gifts are. Listen to this. A spiritual gift is an enablement to meet the needs of people. It is given by the Holy Spirit on the basis of God's free grace in such a way, now this is the key, that people are brought more under the Lordship of Christ with the result that the body of Christ is built up in quality and quantity. Hear that? People are brought more and more under the Lordship of Christ with the result that the body of Christ, that is the church, is built up in quality and quantity. In other words, spiritual gifts are things that you do, not just have, but exercise and do and use for the benefit of the church. Look at verse 12. Paul says, to equip his people for works of service. Why? So that the body of Christ may be built up. That's what a spiritual gift is for, to build up the body of Christ. Now understand something. A spiritual gift is not necessarily a talent. Talents and spiritual gifts aren't necessarily the same thing. Talents are not always used as a spiritual gift. And sometimes you can be kind of lousy at something, but still it is a gift because if the definition of a spiritual gift is the building up of the body of Christ and people coming more and more under the lordship of Christ, sometimes it seems like God uses you to do that in the lives of people despite yourself. Now, let me give you an illustration that helps with help explain what I mean. Many of you probably have heard of a guy named Charles Spurgeon, great Baptist preacher of the 19th century, the 1800s, and he was extremely eloquent. Uh, He was able to craft these remarkably vivid messages, and and God used him uh, in in incredible ways that, that people's lives were changed as he preached the gospel. So he had a talent for public speaking and oratory, okay? And God used that talent as a gift to bring more people under the lordship of Jesus Christ and build up the body, okay? How many of you have heard of a guy named Jonathan Edwards? He's also a famous theologian, more so than known as a famous theologian than as a a famous preacher. And he was a preacher who lived in the 1700s, And God used him incredibly in his preaching ministry. People were like literally, I kid you not, people were literally falling into the aisles in church while he preached under the conviction of their sin. 
and crying out to God in repentance and finding his grace and, and lives were completely being transformed. But here's the thing. Jonathan Edwards was a terrible preacher in the sense that this is what he did. Apparently, I wasn't there, 1700s obviously. You know, he stood there and he had a manuscript and he just kind of read it monotone. And yet, thousands, apparently, thousands of people were converted under his ministry. And that's because, friends, the Holy Spirit, he blows where he will blows. If, if you have a gift, if you have the gift of teaching, for example, you don't have to be the most eloquent speaker in order for people to understand the Word of God and find themselves convicted of sin and, and experiencing his, God's grace. If you have the gift of counseling, it doesn't mean that you have to have all kinds of education and letters behind your name. It just means that maybe you have a, God somehow has enabled you to be able to speak with kindness and grace and compassion and wisdom into the lives of other people so that they are brought more and more under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the body is built up. So that's what spiritual gifts are. And every single follower of Jesus Christ has a spiritual gift. doesn't matter if you're nine years old or 90 years old. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you have at least one spiritual gift and possibly more. And you are expected, Paul says, to employ that gift, to use that gift, to exercise that gift by serving your brothers and sisters in the church, by serving others. So that all of us, Paul says, are brought to maturity in Christ. Now, some of you are saying to yourself, well, I don't really, I don't have a gift. And if I do have a gift, I have a boring gift. Like, I don't know what my gift is. Maybe it is baking. But that's a boring gift. That's not a, an important gift. That's not a, 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 a powerful gift. Oh, friends, look at how Paul describes what Jesus did. In verses 8 through 10, he says, this is what it says. When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? Now, this is what Paul is describing. He's describing his ascension, but then he's also describing the fact that in order for Jesus to have gone up, Jesus had to go down. And when he's describing Jesus going down, he's describing Jesus coming into this world, living the life that you should have lived, dying the death that you should have died, going to the cross for you, bearing the weight of God's anger for your sins on his shoulders, experiencing the depths that come from separation from God when we are, when we are separated from him eternally in hell, experiencing that on your behalf. He did all that. In other words, the thing that he has given you, that spiritual gift that I've been describing, that thing that he has been given you, it's not just the spoils of war, it is bought by the blood of Jesus Christ himself and no matter how small you think, insignificant you think it is, it is exceptionally precious. Here's the picture you gotta have, okay? Maybe when, I, when you read verse 8 and you, you picture he descended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Maybe you have pictures of, you know, the, the ancient warrior returning in his chariot and he's just sort of throwing out coins or something or, or like, like, 
like just tossing pixie dust out there and you kind of get hit by a little bit of it. No, no, don't think of it that way. Think of it this way. Think of Jesus who had your name on his lips, okay? Think of this. While he was dying on the cross, he was thinking of you. He had your name on his lips, in his mind, in his heart, and he said, I'm going to save them. I'm going to go to hell to save them from their sins. And when I come back and when I come with my gifts, I have a specific gift in mind for that person so that they can use it to their fullest, so that they can bless my people, so that they can all be built up to me. And so Jesus steps down from that chariot or whatever you want to describe. He steps down with that gift and he walks directly up to you and says, this this gift has your name on it and he hands it to you. It was bought with his blood. When I was 16 years old, my dad offered me a Rolex watch. And to me, it looked a little garish. And I didn't wear watches, and I went, eh, no interest, thanks anyway. Oh, what an idiot. Like, I had no idea what he was offering me. I had no idea the value of that Rolex watch. You have no idea of the value of the gifts that God has given you. And you wonder, how do I recognize those gifts? And maybe we'll be able to go through a whole series on this someday or preach about it more. I can't go on, but let me just say this. You've got to ask yourself, what is it that you do that brings people closer to Jesus? It's not that hard to figure out. What is it? See, one person says Jesus loves you, and you go, Someone else says Jesus loves you, and you go, yeah, Jesus loves me. That person has a spiritual gift. Some of you, it's hospitality. Some of you, it's serving. Some of you, I don't know if it's a spiritual gift, I'll be honest, but, but I know for me, having my time cramped by others, it's not a spiritual gift of mine. I get frustrated. I, I, I don't like having my time sort of taken over by others. Some of you have this ability to, you know, to be inconvenienced, and it never bugs you. The call comes at 10 o'clock at night. You were just about to settle down and watch the news or something, and you need to be somewhere. Sure, I'll come. Where are we going? That's a spiritual gift. What brings people closer to Jesus? And if you say, well, nothing I do brings people closer to Jesus, well, then maybe you aren't exercising your spiritual gift. Number two, another way that Jesus brings us to maturity, a means by God, is a focus on the Word of God. You see, maturity cannot happen. Maturity in Christ cannot happen without a focus on the Word of God and a focusing on the Word of God in the way that God wants us to focus on His Word. Look at verse 11 again. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. Maturity in Christ comes, in part, through the gift of teachers that God has given to the church. And there's four mentioned here, as I said. The apostles and prophets, uh, those are foundational gifts that God gave to the church. I I don't think, based upon, for example, uh, chapter 2, verse 20, where it says, 
uh, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. They were foundational, or also, uh, where else are we looking? Uh, verses, chapter 3, verse 5, um, was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the, whole, by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. So these are two foundational gifts that God gave to the church in its earliest days to communicate the will of God, the teaching of, the, of God through the power of the Holy Spirit before we were given the book that is universally accessible by all Christians in all places. Now, if you want to talk about that with me a little bit more, that's fine. We can do that after the service. But what I want us to focus on is that he's given pastors or pastors and teachers. I think pastors and teachers here in, in the original language is meant to be together. Not all pastors are teachers, but pretty much all no, sorry, not all teachers are pastors, but pretty much all pastors are teachers. Do you get what I'm saying? What is a pastor? Jesus called himself a, a, a pastor. A pastor gathers, feeds, guards, leads the sheep, God's people. And they teach. That's one of the ways they feed. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you have an obligation to nurture someone, you are a teacher, Right? you're a parent and you're a christian you're a teacher what did what did jordan and alicia promise to do they promised to teach lewin the doctrines of our holy religion i know that's old language but it basically means they promised to teach him and, and there's all kinds of teaching ministry that happens in this church in all kinds of unofficial ways we have grief share we have christianity explored we have grace kids on sundays even in nursery, when you are in nursery and you've got these little babies and you cuddle them and you pay attention to them and you show them love and you show them attention, you are teaching them something about their Heavenly Father. And so there's a sense in which teaching ministry happens in all kinds of, of places all over this church and in our homes. But Paul is referring specifically in this passage to the office of pastor. These are people who are set apart set apart or ordained people who are, who are meant to communicate God's word in a setting like this. Why? Verse 12. Verse 12. Or sorry, I missed it. To equip his people for works of service. In other words, God gives the church teachers, okay, to equip you and me to do our job better what we're called to do, the exercising of our gifts. Now that's a really quick point two, and I have a couple more things I wanted to say. Go to point three and apply this really concretely, and I can't even remember what I said point three was. What's it say on this thing? The necessity of both input and output. Okay, that's a great heading. I love it. What do I want to say here? Paul is saying we need both of these things, the exercise of our gifts and a focus on the Word of God in order for all of us together to grow up in the maturity in Christ. In other words, we need both input, sorry, input and output. Both of these things are necessary. We must let the teachers of God teach us in order to equip us 
for works of service, and we must exercise those gifts. Let me think about the, let me work out the implications with you for a minute. If you only come to church services, okay, but you don't commit to using your gifts in the life of the church, all you do is attend Sunday morning and then you carry on with your life from Monday through Saturday just doing your own thing, you cannot, we cannot grow up into maturity in Christ. It's a little bit like saying, you know, I want to be fit, so I eat a lot, but I never exercise. It's not going to work, right? You have to burn calories in order to be fit. And, and the, the reality is, is that we're all damaged when we don't commit to some form of ministry among one another for the sake of the whole body. Look at verse 13. It says, again, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Listen, we are part of a body. If, if your knee is injured and it's not working properly, you will start walking funny. And when you start walking funny, you mess up your back. And when you mess up your back, you start getting pain going up your neck and you start getting headaches. And all kinds of things happen to you because we're connected to one another. And so if, if you're not connecting through works of service and exercising your gifts, we're all suffering. That's the point. And at the same time, no super involved person who's always getting involved and doing things, etc., but never, never really wants to sit under the word, doesn't commit to coming to worship and hearing God's word proclaimed, etc., they're going to burn out because all they're doing is burning calories, calories, but they're not taking any, anything in. There's no input. Look at verse 14. This shows why this is so incredibly important. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Anyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ starts that life as an infant, as a baby. And some of us grow more slowly than others. But one thing is true. Babies are susceptible, right? They're susceptible to illness. Babies get colds easier than adults. And toddlers and small children are impressionable. And you could say even gullible. They'll believe things that aren't true. But in verse 14... When you read what Paul is saying here about every wind of doctrine and the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming, you know, you may think, well, he's talking about wrong, do wrong doctrine and heresy and that kind of thing, and that may be true, but that's not, I don't think that's all he's saying. And our modern Western context has provided for us a much more serious threat that I think we are not taking seriously enough. We are part of a culture that is scheming, that is cunning. And it's scheming and cunning in this way. It's trying to teach us to believe, as Charles Taylor, a brilliant Catholic Canadian philosopher put it, that every one of us must have our own way of realizing our humanity. And that it is important to find and live out 
of one's own, against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from, a, from the outside by society or the previous generation or religious and political authorities. What Charles Taylor is describing is what you call expressive individualism. It's basically this. Our culture has been trying to tell us for the last hundred years at least and is telling us with extreme prejudice for the last 30 or 40 years for sure that you and I need to decide how to live on our own terms. The battle cry of our generation is, you're not the boss of me, don't tell me what to do. And so we have digital, we'll be talking more about this in coming weeks, but we have digital technology like smartphones that have all kinds of apps on them that allow us to enter into superficial relationships on our own terms. And we don't realize that we just, we think we're using these things simply as tools, not realizing that we, our hearts, as we live in this culture, even Christians, as we live in this culture, our hearts are being colonized by this worldview that is, that is not just prevalent, but rampant in our culture. Expressive individualism. Now, when you read the Apostle Paul, and he says something like, when you don't exercise your gifts in community with other Christians in the church, we are all being hurt because you've been so conditioned by expressive individualism. You don't even know what I'm talking about. You don't even know what Paul's getting at. You can't even conceive how that's possible. When you hear uh, uh, Paul say you need to focus on the Word and the way that God has called us to focus on the Word, which is to sit under His teaching with regularity, not, not once a month or not, you know, maybe a couple times a month or something, but you need to be in regular worship with God's people week in and week out. You say, that seems extreme and that seems awfully hard and that seems a little over the top because we cannot conceive in our culture that is so conditioned by this expressive individualism that we desperately need this kind of community. We can't even conceive of it. Paul says in verse 16, listen to what he says, from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. We are joined together. If you, if you don't feel it, that don't mean it's not true. See, that's what expressive individualism tells you. If you don't feel it, it's not true. And Paul is saying, if you don't feel it, that don't mean it's not true. Confused yet? Hope not. We are joined together despite what we want to say about it, despite how we feel about it. Remember I told you last week, my Enneagram tells me I hate being told what to do? It's the worst thing in the world for me. I have to die to that every day. And as I'm reading Ephesians 4 and 5 more and more, I have to die to it big time because the kind of commitment that Paul is calling me to in the church, I have so many other things that I would rather be doing, frankly. 
I'm going to close with two commitments. Remember at the beginning of this series last week, I said um, there was a whole bunch of reasons for this series, so I was going to kind of roll out those different reasons as the weeks go on rather than tell you all in, the, in one sermon. Well, here's another reason for this series. One of the things as a staff team we wanted to do was we wanted to re-emphasize with, with you folk why we, why Grace Valley Church has the ministry structure it does. What's the thinking behind it? What's the point of it? I've had, I don't know how many people tell me, why do you guys keep pushing the engage groups on Sunday? It cramps my style. I got family commitments. I got friends to go see. I got things to do. And I just can't commit to engage groups because I got all the other things. But if you would just put something in an evening, that would, that would work better for us. Why are you always pushing that, that we got to be in church week after week after week after week? Paul, why are you, like, you just so neurotic that you can't handle fewer people in the pews on a Sunday and you go home all depressed? Is that the problem? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, yeah, that is a problem. I admit it. I got tons of problems. It's through these two ministries, Sunday worship and engage groups, that we are trying to disciple followers of Jesus Christ who are mature because they are clear-thinking, deep-feeling, humbly serving. We sit up the, under the Word together, hearing God speak to us together. We're trying to bring deep and powerful teaching to our community so that we can be shaped by it. And then in engage groups, we go deeper in two ways. We go deeper into the word in community, but then we also have opportunity to exercise our gifts for one another in community. As we bear each other's burdens, as some of you who are encouragers are, have opportunity to encourage someone, as some of you who have the gift of hospitality have the opportunity to bring people into your home and make them feel comfortable. And, and, and we do this in community because we're, we're saying that, look, the family of God is something that we must be a part of. Now, I'm going to say something that makes me really nervous to say. I, this is not the only way to do church. It's not like the leadership team in Grace Valley discovered the secret to doing church. And now we're employing it. And everybody's got to do this. And we should export this to every church that, that we come into contact with. I'm not saying that at all. I am saying, though, that this is the way we do church here at Grace Valley. And we are inviting everyone to buy into that. And that may not be possible for you. But if it's not possible, don't sit back and say, well, then I'm just going to attend services. We encourage you to find that church where you can be built up into the fullness of Christ in, the way, in, a, in a way that perhaps fits your life or whatever better. But what we're calling our community to say is, look, my individualistic core needs to be put to death. And every Sunday, when I get out of bed and I commit to going to worship with God's people, it's put to death a little bit more. And every Sunday, when after services, 
I join with a few people for a couple hours to go a little deeper and to share fellowship, it's put to death a little more. And I have to die that death maybe every week because the old man and woman inside of me is fighting so hard and won't go down without a fight. But I know that the goal is so beautiful. Listen to the whole the goal again. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. In love. As we become the mature body of him who is the head, our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Come to church. Come to church. Come to engage groups. Amen. Pray with me, please. Father, <clears throat> I know that I need these outside, uh, these outside accountability structures that you have given the church. Relational ministry and worship ministry. The, ex, the, the, the context for exercising our gifts, you've given them to me and to all of us, Father, to, to put to death the old man and to, and to help us, Father, not be blown about by every wind of doctrine that so easily buffets us in our modern Western world. Oh, it is so hard. It is so hard, but it is so rewarding. Work in our hearts as a community to really become uh, the body that works together as it's described here by the Apostle Paul. Work on us, Father, work on us, and, and give us, the, give us the, the power by your Spirit to 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 let you work on us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.